to be with you all this morning um, as we are each week. And um, obviously a little bit of a different weather. We're not always used to coming in on this morning. And uh, there were a couple of uh, jokes over the, over the week in anticipation of this weather that may in fact be preaching to about four or five different people. So uh, it's exciting to see uh, the number of folks that are here this morning. My name is Corey Bledsoe. I'm one of the deacons here um, at Oak Park. I have been for a few years now, uh, but also serving, I guess, in this eldership process uh, as being considered as an elder. I'm about halfway through that and was not necessarily anticipating preaching during the middle of that process, uh, but I'm excited to be able to to do that. One of the things that I like to do uh, when I start preaching or teaching or thinking about um, a passage this morning is, is think back to so, uh, some lyrics in a song um, that I've really loved and appreciated uh, for a number, a number of years. I will not sing it. You do not want me to sing it. I assure you of that. Um, my wife is the singer in our family. Uh, I have nothing to offer there. Uh, but the lyrics say, my sin of the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but a whole. We're nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray, and we will jump right into uh, the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Father, we are thankful for your grace. We are thankful um, that you've allowed us to be here this morning. We're thankful for those that are even listening uh, in on Facebook Live right now. We're thankful for the church. Father, we're thankful for the church. We're thankful for uh, this gathering of believers who love you, uh, who want to serve you, who want to honor you uh, with their lives. Father, I pray as we look in 1 Peter, I pray um, that we'll be encouraged. I pray that we'll be edified. I pray that we'll be challenged. Um, I pray that we'll be equipped so that we might go out and do ministry in your name. Father, be with me this morning um, as I, as I prepared um, and as I share uh, from your word. I pray that you'll be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at a, a short passage uh, in 1 Peter 2, uh, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. Um, and again, talking with a, a couple of folks throughout the week, I got, I got the question of like, did, did Pastor Chase give you a, a passage to choose from? No, no. He gave me 66 books to choose from, uh, a lot of verses, a lot of things that we could have uh, landed on this morning. Um, but as I was thinking through it, um, after Pastor Chase asked me uh, to fill in, as I was thinking through it, really even last week, uh, I promised Chris I was listening to you. I don't have any cool stories about hurting my foot while jumping over five people and then winning a tournament, but I, I was, promise you I was listening. Um, but uh, the priesthood language, the priesthood language uh, really is what um, I just kept coming back to. Uh, there was a slide last week, and, and I think I asked someone during that it looked like the temple, but then there was like snow, and it was kind of weird. But, um, but there was a picture on one of the slides and, and kind of the background things, and I don't know if that maybe sparked my interest in kind of this priesthood idea, but, um, but I really just kind of came back to, to priesthood language came back to what does that mean for us today? What does that look like today? And that, that really is what led me to 1 Peter to begin with, uh, and then ultimately to, to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. And so the questions uh, that come up as you study, the questions that come up uh, into what we're looking at is, is who's the audience of 1 Peter? Well, for one, who is Peter? Um, so we know a few things about Peter, right? So we know uh, that Peter was a fisherman. We know that Peter was a disciple. We know that Peter uh, in Caesarea Philippi, in the midst of a pagan land, is the one who first says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We also know that Peter 
is with Jesus as he is about to be crucified. We know that he's with Jesus because we know, as we oftentimes think about with Peter, is that he denied Jesus three times. Right? We know that about him. We know that he's in the courtyard while Jesus uh, is being uh, persecuted or being flogged or being questioned about who he is uh, as he's preparing for the cross. And we know that Peter is the one when asked, you were with this man, right? No, 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 no. I don't know him. I don't know him. We know that Peter is who the apostle Paul comes and wants to see in Jerusalem um, so that he can be not really, uh, not really accepted, but really kind of affirmed in his ministry to the Gentiles. We know that Peter uh, was a great leader in the early church. And so Peter is writing this book. Well, who is he writing it to? Who's, who's he writing this to? Well, we know that in verse 1 of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So we know that he's writing to Christians. We know that he's writing to exiled Christians. Now, you get into study, and I promise we'll get to 1 Peter 2. You get into study, and you start to say, okay, well, who are these elect exiles of the dispersion? Well, there's a lot of questions around who those exile, elect exiles of this version are. And so I'm like, okay, this is good. This is good. I'm starting off strong. There's a lot of questions about uh, who these people are. You go into our passage, uh, or excuse me, you go into who's the audience? Who's the primary audience? Is this a Jewish converts to Christianity? Are these primarily Gentiles? Well, John Calvin would say that it's primarily a Jewish audience. John Piper would say that's primarily Gentile. I asked Pastor Chase, primarily Gentile. I asked Norm, uh, primarily Gentile. Um, I talked to Jeremy, and I don't really know where we came up with that as we were uh, having lunch. And so I asked a number of different people. Uh, and so there's a, a myriad of understanding. And again, I'm here being reaffirmed in, oh goodness, I have chosen this passage, and we're trying to figure out who the intended audience was. And I think what the reality of it is, as we got into it, as I got into the study and, and started to learn and listen, is it didn't so much matter, is it primary Jewish or primary Gentile? It didn't so much matter what percentage it was of Jewish or what percentage it was of Gentile. But I think what matters is it was likely both in some capacities. And what ultimately matters is that he's writing to believers. And so as we read this passage, we're reading it and receiving it as a Christian. If you are a Christian this morning, we're reading and we're receiving this book and this passage as one who proclaims the name of Christ. And so let's look. Let's look at the passage, uh, and let's try to have a, a better understanding of why Peter is writing what he is writing. So beginning in verse 9, again, chapter 2, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we read this passage, and as we look at what Peter is exclaiming and proclaiming uh, to his readers, 
he starts, at least in this, these verses, and I think if we were to read one through leading up to, you would see some of this other language, um, but he refers to Christians as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people set apart for his own possession, a people of his own possession. So what does that mean for us? How do we, how do we receive that today? We're not, we're, we're not an Old Testament figure. We're not, uh, we don't understand the Old Testament in the same way uh, that, that the Old Testament figures did. And, and, and new Christians looking back at the Old Testament and saying, okay, here's a sacrificial system. Here's a priesthood system. Um, here's Israel designated as this holy nation and this people of God. We, we, we see that and we look back to that. Well, undoubtedly, some of Peter's audience was looking forward from that. And Gentiles may not have even known what that was talking about. But I think we have to presume that Peter made an assumption that even the Jews that receive this and even Gentiles that receive this have this general understanding of the priesthood. So where do we get that priesthood from? Well, one of the first things that we look at um, and I think I have a few points to share with you because undoubtedly I will uh, transition over some of these or whatever, but I promise there are points to this. Remember you are a covenant people. Remember you are a covenant people. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a covenant people? Well, there are covenants in the Old Testament. What covenants do we see um, as we lead to the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Well, there's the first one. I think we see a covenant with Noah, right? So we see a Noahic covenant. Well, if we go back to our stories, and undoubtedly in the storybook that was just given, um, there will be a story about this great flood, and then there will be probably a picture of a rainbow um, after that. And, and, and we think about, well, what does that mean? Well, it's a great Bible story. Well, it is a great Bible story, but it's, it's a story that essentially redeems mankind. It allows mankind to continue. And maybe redemption is not the right word because Tom Schreiner says it's not really a redemptive covenant, but it's a covenant that was necessary to lead to redemption. And so we know in that covenant, God makes covenant with Noah saying, never again will I flood the earth and destroy mankind, but I make a covenant with you and here's a sign of my covenant is this bow in the sky, this bow. And so we know that God has made his first covenant um, that we see in the scriptures. Well, what's next? Well, it's, the, it's Abraham. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is where I think we start getting into what Peter is talking about as this idea of being a chosen race, a holy nation. Well, who's Abraham? Well, Abraham essentially is just a guy right? I mean, there's, there's some good qualities probably. There's, there's good things that he's doing, but he, he's, he's a guy. And, and God chooses Abraham to engage and to bring about this covenant. Well, what are some things that we see? So uh, we're going to look at a passage real quick. Uh, I do not have it up here, um, but if you do have your scriptures with you, um, let's look real quick at, at Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. And we're going to understand of what type of covenant we're looking in. There's going to be a couple of things that we look at in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred 
and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, his homeland. So God is telling Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you and your offspring. And we remember that there was no offspring at this time. I'm going to make your, you a nation, and I'm going to make it great. And if we move over to Genesis 17, 1 through 8, We'll quickly go through this. Is when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, I will make you a great nation. I'll make you the father of a multitude of nations. From you, kings will come. From you, kings will come. It is an everlasting covenant. And I will give you a promised land. I will give you a land for your possession. So this is this beginning to establish the nation of Israel, beginning to establish uh, this, this idea of God having a people. Well, then we go into the Mosaic Covenant. There will be a quiz later on who these covenants are associated with, I promise. So the Mosaic Covenant is associated with Moses. Uh, all right, so we understand Moses. We understand that Israel ends up in, in, in Egypt and ends up in captivity. And we know that the people are being disgruntled. They're pleading with God to end this. And so what do we see with the Mosaic Covenant? Let's look real quick at Exodus 6. And we're going to look at a couple of verses here. Exodus 6, verses 2. We'll begin in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my, my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. 
I am the Lord. And so Moses goes and he shares this with the people of Israel. That God will redeem them out of slavery and that they will be his people. That they will be, that he will be their God. They will be his people and they will be his treasured possession among all. They're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so I think we're starting to kind of get an understanding of how one covenant is leading to another covenant and how that covenant is leading to another covenant. And then the last covenant we see uh, in the Old Testament, I would say, primarily is in the Davidic covenant. We understand King David. We understand uh, his history. We understand where, uh, where David comes in uh, and is now king, and he has come in uh, to Jerusalem, and he's established his kingdom, uh, and now he wants to build this house where the, uh, the Spirit of God can dwell forever, and, and God says, I'll make a covenant with you. And we see this established in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, so we're going to read that covenant real quick. We've read the other one, so we might as well read this one too. Um, we'll look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. It says, When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. So this is a message through Nathan to David um, that his kingdom will be established through an heir, that a house will be built for the dwelling place of God, that a throne will be established forever. And we see language says, I will be to him a father and to me a son, and they will be everlasting. They'll be everlasting. And so if we were to continue to read on, we would understand that Solomon ultimately, David's son, ultimately builds this temple and so I think about this priesthood language. I think about uh, what does that mean in today's world. And if we were standing right now on the Mount of Olives and we were overlooking Jerusalem, you would see this vast temple. You would see uh, some, some different rocks on the bottom that are different from some of the walls on the top. And the reason being is because Herod's temple, as we know, was torn down in AD 70. And so if we uh, walked around to the to front staircase to get into the temple, we'd see some of the big boulders that match some of the base of the wall. Well, the top rocks are built uh, some centuries later by the Turks as they reestablished and rebuilt this temple. And we go to what we're commonly known as the Western Wall, and we would see uh, men being able to go to this wall on the left and women going to the wall on the right and everyone going with, with little prayers to put into the cracks of this wall. And that's where Jewish folks worship the Lord because that is as close as they feel they can get to the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells. And if we were to go on top of that Temple Mount that is controlled by, by the Muslim population and the Muslim leadership at that time, where Jews, only a select few Jews can go, and they have to go with guarded, uh, guarded bodyguards or whatever, uh, and they try to go as close as they can get to the most holy place. And if you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you see the dome on the rock and this gold dome, everybody's probably familiar with this, that's built over top of where some historians think the Holy of Holies was located. 
Some also think it's another little obscure space on the Temple Mount. And yet the goal is as they excavate down through, you can continue to walk on that western wall. And now women can only go to this space. And they're standing up against this western wall because that's the place that they think now is the closest they can get to the dwelling of God. The closest they can get to the dwelling of God. We understand what's happening there because of these covenants. And primarily this Davidic covenant, this, this house that was built where the dwelling of God can be. And it's not just reserved to Jews and to Muslims. Friends, if you were to take a walk uh, not 500 yards further past the temple, you'll come to a place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you'll think and see this, this monstrosity of a church uh, with all of this uh, sort of mosaics and, and beautified space, and that is the place where Christians believe that Christ was crucified. And then you can walk a little bit further and go to where Christians historically have thought that's where Jesus was buried. Now, in my mind, this stuff's fascinating to me, that's why I kind of get into it, but in my mind, that's amazing. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing to, to be able to go and, and walk where Jesus walked. It's an amazing thing to be able to go and, and touch the rock upon which Christ was crucified. It's an amazing thing to go and see the temple in which Christ was, was buried, but the reality of it is in the new covenant in Christ is they don't matter. They don't matter. And so Peter is writing to his audience of believers saying, you, you church, you Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of my own possession. Those rocks have no power, have no power. And I'm not anti-pilgrimage. I'm not anti-seeing these things, but they have no power. Church, Christian, this morning, remember the covenants. You are a holy nation. You are the priesthood. Well, what did the priests do? Well, they made sacrifice for sin. The high priest uh, made sacrifice for sin. We understand this from Hebrews 5. But, but priests were, were really shepherding people to obey the commandments and obey the law. You are that. But greater than that, greater than that, church, the church is now the representation of Christ to the unbelieving world. So if you're here this morning and you're, you're thinking about um, how do I impact uh, my community with the gospel? How do I impact my workplace with the gospel? Some of you, and John Piper takes this passage and actually teaches uh, a lot about missions. There's a call to mission work, um, he would argue, in this passage. I think it starts with the right understanding, and, and uh, Chris talked about this a little bit last week, a right understanding of our position before God. We're not just saved people, though we are. We're a royal priesthood representing Christ to an unbelieving nation. So Peter is writing to his people, again, some Jews, some Gentiles, who may or may not have this robust understanding of covenant language, but it is rife with covenant language, that the covenant is now found in Christ and in his church. And so what do we know and where do we go from there? And what does Peter say from there? Well, why? 
why is Peter reminding his readers? Why is Peter reminding his readers that you are these things? So they might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's a great gospel. And I think if you shared your testimony today and you think back to your own personal testimony or the testimonies of some that I know in here that have shared with me and you think about this idea of I was in darkness. I was in darkness. And now, because of Christ and the excellency of Christ, I've been brought into light. There's a lot of language uh, in a lot of passages that point to this. We see this even earlier in 1 Peter 1, uh, 14 through 15. We see this idea of what people once were uh, and what they are now. And so looking at verse 14, uh, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. If we were to go over to Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Second Corinthians 5, we know this idea that the old has passed and the new has come. John 8, 12, we know that in Christ we will not walk in darkness, but we will walk in the light. Why do we need to be reminded about covenant language? Why do we need to remember uh, covenant language? Why do we need to remember the fulfillment of the covenants in Christ? Uh, therefore, allowing us to be heirs is so that we might proclaim the excellencies of God. Well, what does pro proclamation look like? Well, I think it's, it's both and. We were proclaiming this morning, singing and worshiping. The Lord this morning is a form of proclamation of the excellencies of God. We're singing about what God has done for us. But if you listened and read through some of the lyrics, we also sang about how we will make Christ known to the rest of the world. So if you think about the title, and I'm not big on titles, but if you think about the title of uh, the passage, the proclamation of the gospel in word and deed, we'll get to the deed here in just a moment, but we are God's holy nation, royal priesthood, to make known his excellencies uh, among the world. Talk about how he brought us from darkness and into light. And so what has he done for us? What has he done for us? We see it uh, as Peter continues on uh, and really focuses on, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's all of us as Christians. That's all of us. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We're not God's people, but now we are God's people. We see this uh, reference to Hosea chapter 2, 
And we think about uh, Israel, and you think about histories of Israel, and if you were to take a quick snapshot uh, of his, Israel's history, uh, it's up and down, it's, it's obedience and it's disobedience, and it's uh, restoration, and it's, it's all of these things. And so Hosea, the prophet, is, is foretelling uh, this, uh, this idea that because of your disobedience, because of your, uh, your unfaithfulness, uh, you will suffer. You will suffer, but I will restore you one day. You who were no mercy, you will have mercy. You who are not my people, you will be my people. Christian, that is you today as well. That is you. That is me. Praise the Lord that we didn't deserve anything. We didn't deserve God's mercy. We didn't deserve to be called into his people. But think and remember the covenants and think about his establishment in the covenants that he wanted to establish a people of his own possession. And that is ultimately found in the personal work of Christ. That we are God's people. We also know from 2 Corinthians 5 that we are God's people to be ambassadors for Christ, to be ministers of reconciliation. So it's not enough that we just sort of sit in this idea that, uh, that we are now redeemed and, and there's nothing more that we can do. No, it's that God uses his people to be his representatives in this world. And so we take that uh, with us. We take the power of Christ with us so that we might be a minister of reconciliation, so that we might be ambassador for Christ. He has given us mercy, and he has called us to be his people. We could look at other passages uh, about how uh, when we were weak, Christ died in Romans 5, that we were enemies and we've now been reconciled in Romans 5. Colossians 1, we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing even de- evil deeds, but we've now been reconciled. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, um, but we are now alive. We can rest in that truth for those that are in Christ. We were dead and now we are alive. And so we would proclaim the excellencies of, of him who brought us out of the darkness and into the light. And so we move in to verse 11. Uh, a lot of commentators, a lot of folks would think that um, the gap here um, is actually Peter beginning sort of a new argument, a new address. Um, it's, if, if your Bible is anything like mine, it's probably after verse 12 is where it uh, sort of separates itself. But um, nonetheless, I think there's uh, an argument that's being made here. It says, okay, you are a holy nation. You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. Uh, you are a, a, a people for his own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You who had no mercy have now received mercy. You who are not his people have now uh, become his people. But, but, but why? And, and what for? And what does that mean for, for the readers in their context in that day? And what are we supposed to think about uh, with respect to that today? And and I think we see this, this language that goes back to uh, the first chapter in verse 1, uh, and we have this idea of sojourners and exiles coming back. So a lot of commentators that I, that I kind of went through and looked at um, talked about that it's not so much that sojourners and, sojourners and exiles and the, and the intention of uh, Peter using that language again is to refer back to this actual uh, exile that, that the readers were experiencing. But it's the idea that we as Christians living in this world are sojourners and, sojourners and exiles in this world, in our culture, in our society. 
we celebrated uh, life this morning, sanctity of life. Why we have to celebrate sanctity of life in our modern culture is because culture doesn't traditionally celebrate sanctity of life. That's why we have Sundays dedicated to these things, is because our culture is not celebrating life. Unborn babies aren't given rights, not viewed as humans. And it's tragic, and it speaks in direct contrary to what we know to be true uh, of God and the gospel, is that every life is sacred. Every life is sacred. And so how, Peter's audience, and how, Oak Park, do we live as that covenant people in the midst of a culture um, that is, I would say, never been Christian, but certainly is even more and more uh, moving away uh, from the, the principles and, and the doctrines that we, we hold to. And I think that's what Peter's addressing here. I think the audience are, are exiles and sojourners because they once lived in ignorance, and so they looked like everybody else. There was no difference. They were engaged in everything else. They were engaged in all the things that pagans engage in. And then they were converted and saved and brought out of the darkness and into the light. And now they live differently. Well, yeah, that's what brought about some of their persecution. That's what brought about some of their difficulties. And I think we need to understand that that too will be us if it's not already. There's a couple of things that I read this week. I work at Recenter Ministries. We work with men and women that are in homelessness uh, and some families and, and different things like that. I won't go too much into that. But I was reading an article, a couple of articles that I got from some sister missions around the country um, that are being faced day in and day out with some of these realities. And, and we'll get into uh, this idea uh, of people that speak of you as evildoers, people that speak of you as evildoers. There's a mission in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, it's a domestic violence shelter for women and women with kids to flee domestic violence. Well, they're being challenged uh, by uh, municipalities there and, and, and citizens there and the fairness campaigns there um, because they don't allow someone who, I, who is biologically female to identify, who identify, or excuse me, biologically male who identifies as female to take advantage of a, an all-women's shelter. And they're getting... I mean, they're getting chastised for this. They're being brought before courts for this. I was reading another article out of Seattle of a gospel mission who just wants to serve. I mean, $20 million mission. $20 million mission in Seattle. has been around for years proclaiming the gospel and serving uh, homeless men and women and families in that community. And, and, and they're being challenged right now on hiring practices because they, they would not hire someone who couldn't affirm their statements of faith and who practiced a sexuality that didn't align with their uh, core belief system. And they're being sued at this point for those types of things and being called evildoers. How dare you? How dare you do these types of things? Well, we see that here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If you're familiar with John Piper, which I'm, I'm going to presume that a lot of you are, um, there's this really interesting video. Um, some of you have probably heard this Make War sermon before. It's about an hour-long uh, sermon, but somebody kind of chopped it up into about 16 minutes, or six minutes, excuse me, and put some really weird graphics on it. Um, but it's, a, it's a, a truth thing, so I would encourage you to listen to it. Um, just, just don't mind the graphics that are on there, because it's like lightning bolts and thunder and all this kind of weird stuff. But, but the premise of this sermon is what we're looking at here, which is abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So yes, we are a royal priesthood. Yes, we are a holy nation. Yes, we proclaim the marvelous excellencies of, uh, of, of him who brought us out of darkness and into light. But Peter is encouraging these believers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Well, Piper in the sermon talks about this idea of uh, hearing Christians talk mildly about sin, talk mildly about their lives. Shane I, Parker, I think you even talked a little bit about this in Sunday school where it's like, oh, I'm struggling with, with this or I'm struggling with that. And it's like, yes, this is true, but are you warring against that? Are you battling against that? And so as we are in a culture that's less and less Christian, we will be battling more and more. Are we prepared for the battle? Are we prepared for the battle? As Piper would say, make war. Are we prepared for the battle that we're in? And Peter was writing to his audience to say, abstain from these things. You're going to be set apart. That's why you're being persecuted. That's why you have challenges. That's why you're not being accepted in your culture. But abstain from these things. Forget about your old ignorance. Forget about your old ways. Abstain from them. And he continues on and he says, not only abstain from them, but that keeping your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. The Gentiles here likely means non-Christians, pagans. Uh, most commentators would say that it's not really Gentile as we think about Jew and Gentile, but it's just unbelievers, non-Christians. Keep your conduct honorable among them so that, so that while they revile you, while they consider you evildoers, while they uh, harass you or persecute you, you keep your conduct honorable and there's some debate about what this last text means, but, but I, I firmly believe um, that this is a, a concept of by your honor in this culture that doesn't embrace you, you might in fact see some who are saved by your conduct. Ultimately, the sharing of the gospel, repentance and belief will save, but your conduct, someone will look at your conduct and see that as honorable and say, well, maybe this is true. Maybe this is right. We know, John 10.10, 10, that the thief is coming to steal, kill, and destroy. We know in Romans 8, it says, live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the Spirit, you'll put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. We know in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death 
what is earthly in you. Paul says, I beat my body and make it a slave so that um, I will not be disqualified from the prize at the end. It's a discipline. It's a discipline to maintain your conduct and that it be honorable among those who will consider you to be evildoers. These missions that I talked about rose locally. We're going to fight. But all of you in your places of work, if you, if you catch up on any news about Christians and anything like that, you're seeing that even in the workplace, Christians are being reviled and considered evildoers. Jobs are being lost for the sake of Christ. Let your conduct be honorable. Abstain from the passions of the flesh because, because you never know what your conduct among culture and among a society might do for someone in their salvation. We know when Jesus was crucified, the centurion says, surely he was who he said he was. Surely he was uh, the Son of God. And so we see that, and we understand that, and Peter is encouraging his readers, he's encouraging the exiles, the elect exiles of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is a large, vast of land. It's not like, you know, two neighborhoods connected to each other. This is a wide array of an audience here. And he's encouraging them to stand firm, to stand firm in the gospel, to stand firm uh, in who you are now versus what you were before. And so I think as we close, I think we can heed from this passage a couple of things. And you see, again, the points on here, and I don't know if I mentioned even the last two, but that's okay. Um, protect your life and project godliness no matter what the cost. And that's easy for me to stand here and say that. It's easy for me to stand here and encourage you in that. It's much harder when you're facing it, but that is the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of a body of believers who come together and meet in community groups and share life together and worship together and live together in community is that we can spur each other on uh, toward this end because we never know. We never know when our conduct among Gentiles might lead to the salvation of some of those Gentiles. Um, and I would not want to encourage us to limit the power of God. And Peter didn't want... Um, his readers to be limited, um, but to understand that it's worth it. It's worth it. And so as we think about Piper, I encourage you to go read, watch the video. It's, it's really funny, but it is powerful. You know, as we make war against our sin, let's understand what it's, what it's for and why. So remember the covenants. Remember the history. Remember why uh, we think and why the Old Testament's important. I know we had someone share with us on a Wednesday night just uh, just recently about this. The Old Testament is pointing us to a greater covenant, a new covenant, and a final covenant in Christ, and that we, church, are now the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, uh, and a people set for his possession so that we might proclaim uh, the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into light. And when we receive no mercy, we've now received mercy, that we're exiles and sojourners, so that we might live an honorable life in a dishonorable society among Gentiles that are calling us evildoers and, and, and throwing all sorts of different things our way to, to, to disrupt us 
but we do it because we know that some of them might be saved. So proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for your grace. We're thankful for your word. Lord, I pray that we are encouraged. I pray that we are challenged. I pray that we are humbled. Um, And I pray that we have a spirit this morning that rests in Christ and his salvation, that we got a glimpse of history leading to the person and the work of Christ on the cross so that those who believe in him are now that chosen race, that royal priesthood, that holy nation, that we are a people of your possession so that we might proclaim your gospel. So, Father, I pray that we'll be encouraged to do so. I pray that we'll be challenged to do so. Uh, And I pray that as we come together as a church, that we can uh, spur each other on toward love and good deeds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together.
this place today, may grace and peace be multiplied to you.